0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, Two Pillars. Um, Even this morning, as I was mulling over this this text, as I was thinking about what I had prepared, and honestly, uh, as because the Holy Spirit was revealing to me what was swirling around in my own heart, here's the the conclusion that I came to, um, and it's this. We need to be on guard. We need to be on guard. I don't know about you, but the past 18 months or so have been an almost perfect breeding ground for cynicism and compl- complacency in my own heart. March 2020, the pandemic officially began. We're all stuck at home for the better part of three months or so, which, which honestly had its benefits, right? Had its drawbacks, but, but had benefits as well. But over time, things became increasingly less good (laughs) right about staying at home and and there were other things swirling around as well the summer of 2020 there was the death of george floyd and the unrest that followed and before you knew it everything had become politicized masks politicized vaccines are politicized My words, they've become politicized. My silence, it's politicized. Politicians have never been more disappointing, at least in in my view. The news has never been more sensationalized. Relationships have never been more difficult. We talked about this a little bit last week, especially within the church. Many of us us have never felt more lonely than we do right now. Leadership has never been more difficult. Leadership has never felt more lonely. And division, it abounds in the church, in our culture, in our city. And then there was reprieve. Things were starting to open back up again. Life was beginning to to resemble something, something that looked kind of like normal? And now here I am, and here you are, the mask strapped to our faces yet again. I don't know about you, but I feel like someone snuck into my house and like added layers to my mask. It feels uh, more constricting and restrictive than it did before. Uh, look, some of you are taking that in stride. I'll be honest, I, I've not taken it in stride thus far. And, and look, cynicism and complacency, it's, it's kind of like that block of cheese that you just bought a few days ago. You stuck it in the fridge. It's a Friday night. You're getting ready to get out the crackers and the cheese. You, you pull out that block of cheese and you notice it's already moldy. moldy mold has already started to form. You didn't even know it. It kind of caught you by surprise. And look, this is how it was for God's people in Malachi's day as well. Different circumstances, but, but very much the same. Remember, God's people had been in captivity in Babylon until the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And the Persians allowed them to return to their land and rebuild the temple. And so Malachi writes to his people, Malachi, the messenger of the Lord, his ministry takes place most likely sometime after the completion of the temple. It happens sometime after the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. And it seems as though while worship had begun in the temple, there was something that was just a little bit off. Now, keep in mind that because we're on the heels of Haggai and Zechariah, God's people had begun their temple worship yet again as they awaited for the fulfillment of some pretty significant promises given to them by these two prophets in particular. For example, Haggai said, in, In uh, chapter 2, verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The promise that the the prophet Haggai gave to his people was a a house, the temple, filled with his glory yet again. Zechariah in chapter 1 of his book said this, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. Well, unfortunately, these promises and blessings have yet to materialize for Malachi and his contemporaries. And you see, while thriving had been promised, what they were doing at this point was merely surviving. Yes, they had been allowed to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple, but they were still under the thumb of an oppressor. They were still under the thumb of the Persian Empire. They were surrounded by enemies and neighbors who loomed large often opposed them and antagonized them their crops were failing it was hard to put food on the table life was hard and so as they waited as they waited for the fulfillment of these promises cynicism and complacency were taking root in their lives. And what we see here, and the thing that Malachi addresses, the Lord addresses through Malachi, is this, that that their cynicism and their complacency was affecting their worship. Their worship had grown empty. Their worship had grown cold. And so Malachi is here today to call you and to call me out of our cynicism. He's going to tell God's people. He's going to tell us. He's going to to call us out of our complacency, out of our cynicism, into right worship of and true devotion to our God. And and to summarize Malachi's main point, I, I, I would merely put it this way our worship matters. Our worship matters, even in hard times, our worship matters. It matters because to be a worshiper of Jesus has implications for our lives. We don't get to, de- to determine and decide, especially in the midst of our own cynicism and complacency, what this is going to look like. The Lord is going to tell us what this looks like. And so Malachi is going to lay out some of these implications for us today. Now, the, the structure, kind of the, the bones of this book, um, is, is, is really interesting. You see, the, the book revolves around six disputations, or kind of hypothetical back and forths between God and his people. And it could be argued that disputations 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 mirror one another in a structure that looks much like this. This is a a chiastic structure. We've seen this elsewhere in the Minor Prophets. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin in the middle and we're going to work our way out. So we're going to begin with Disputations 3 and 4, work our way to 2 and 5, and then finally to 1 and 6. We're going to pair these, um, we're going to pair two of them together um, as we go. And so let, let's begin then in the middle. Take a look at the the horizontal implications of our worship. Now again, cynicism and complacency of had, had seeped into the hearts and lives of God's people. And what we see is that this, this cynicism, this complacency, had begun to affect not just their own personal lives. This wasn't just like this, this hidden thing, uh, this thing that was hidden away in their hearts, but it, it had begun to impact the... The very manner in which they engaged in relationships with those around them, and it was affecting the way that they treated people, even people in their own home. For example, the third disputation in the third disputation, the Lord tells the people of Israel that their worship has implications for marriage and family. And in so doing, he confronts their unfaithfulness to one another. Look in chapter 2 verse 10. He says, "Have we not all one father?" Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. What is this abomination? Where where, where is he going with this? What's the charge? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. How? Which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And so we see in this disputation, there are two things that the Lord is addressing, and they're both very much connected to worship. Number one, the Israelite men were marrying foreign women. Not only that, but he also explains in the verses that follow that they were divorcing their wives divorcing their Jewish wives in all likelihood in order that they might be freed up to marry these foreign women. Now look, there's a lot that could be said here, I think, a lot we could take here from this passage uh, on on the covenant to marriage, and, and we just don't have time today to get into much of any of that. But here's the observation I want us to make. Marriage and family are all about worship. Marriage and family. If you're married, your marriage, it's all about worship of the Lord our God. Now, why does the Lord say that it's an abomination for the, the men to take foreign wives? I will assure you, before you get worked up and accused our Lord of being a racist, it has nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with racial purity. It has everything to do with worship. It has everything to do with purity of worship. This is why he refers to these women as daughters of a foreign God. These women... They weren't worshipers of the Lord. And so therefore, they were worshipers of pagan gods, false gods. And what they threatened to do was to introduce idolatry into the lives and the families of God's people. And the men who were marrying them risked having their hearts led astray. They risked the hearts of their children being led astray from devotion To the Lord. And by the way, this is exactly how this plays out over and over and over again in the pages of the scriptures. And I would argue, real life. So then, what does divorce have to do with worship? Well, because of the the nature of the covenant of marriage, to be unfaithful to one's spouse and the marriage covenant was to be unfaithful to God himself, who was a witness to the marriage covenant. Now look, I want to be careful to say this, that that there there are certainly biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery, for example. You, You could make an argument for abandonment. Again, we don't have time to get into that this morning. Here's what we know from the text. These were not the reasons why the Israelite men were divorcing their women. They just just weren't feeling it anymore. They had grown even to despise their wives. They they fell out of love. What we're talking about here is no-fault divorce, and it was running rampant. And the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 16, that the men who did this covered their garments with violence. Marriage is all about worship. One pastor, Mark Dever, puts it this way in his commentary on this book. He says, in choosing their spouses, they demonstrated what God they chose. In remaining faithful to their spouses, they demonstrated faithfulness to this God. So then, Christian, if you are single and a worshiper of Jesus, then there are implications for who you date, for who you enter into relationship with, and who you marry. He or she should also be a worshiper and a lover of Jesus. And let me propose that if this isn't item number one on your list for your ideal spouse then I might suggest that much like Malachi's original audience, something is lacking or something has gone awry in your own worship of Jesus. And you should be careful to inspect that. And Christian, if, if you're married, then you should make worship of Jesus central in your marriage and in your family. This is what your marriage and your family is all about. And as you do so, strive to be faithful in your marriage covenant, even when things get really difficult. Because as we struggle to remain faithful in the midst of difficulty, we do this as an act of worship to God Himself. Two pillars. We should be invested in one another's lives and marriages encouraging one another to strive for faithfulness. Because again, marriage and family, they're all about worship, and our worship matters. That brings us then to disputation number four. This is where you see some of the cynicism come out. As God's people doubt his justice. They say, you have, uh, the Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So God says, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, so to speak, right? You're, you're wearying me with your words, and, and they, play, they play dumb. How, how have we wearied you? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, God's people have leveraged an accusation against him. And the accusation is this. Look at all the people around us who do evil and go unpunished. And, and what's more, to make matters worse, they seemingly flourish. And so the, the cynical conclusion that they've arrived at, in their finite, fallen, and skewed perspective, is that God must not be Just. I wonder. Do you ever feel this way? Do you ever find yourself? Maybe not articulating them out loud, but do you ever find yourself asking these types of questions about God? God, if if you're so good and so just, why does so much evil, especially evil against your people, go unpunished? Why why are Christians being slaughtered in Afghanistan right now? Why do those who hate you and despise your name appear to be winning? Why do those who oppose your word and your people appear to be growing in power and influence? Why does violence and wickedness and injustice abound? Why hasn't the person who hurt me been held accountable? Look at Our God is the God of justice. And as worshipers of this God of justice, we should be lovers of justice ourselves. And we should treat others, Christians and non-Christians, justly and lovingly and fairly. Why? Why? Because he tells us here, he tells his people here, this is because he will bring judgment. In due time, he will bring judgment. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He casts a vision of, of hope for his people. He says, justice is coming. The, the bringer of justice is coming. Now the New, Test, the New Testament tells us that these words, they point forward to the coming of John the Baptist who would ultimately prepare the way for who? Jesus. Jesus himself. The the same Jesus who came to absorb the punishment due to his people, us included, for our sin. And who would one day come again to fully and finally and justly, once and for all, judge the living and the dead will one day come to settle all accounts and the Lord assures his people in verse 5 of chapter 3 that then I will draw near to you for judgment we're going to need help if he's going to draw near to us for judgment why we're implicated just as much aren't we I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So, the Lord calls His people, even in the midst of their their cynicism, to trust in Him as the ultimate executor of justice in his own time, and in so doing, He calls them to treat one another and those around them justly, and so that we, we see some of the horizontal implications that go along with being worshipers of this God, But look, our worship doesn't just have horizontal implications, but there are obviously vertical implications as well. And we see that cynicism and complacency, they, they, they seep in and distort this manner of worship or this plane of worship as well. And So the second point, the vertical implications of our worship, there are two issues that the Lord addresses with his people here as well. The first is their spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. This takes us to the second disputation, beginning in chapter one, verse six. The Lord says, "A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear?" Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Prove it. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Look, the people of Israel had begun to just mail it in. Do you see this? Their worship had grown completely apathetic and in their apathy they had actually grown disobedient. Now now, look, they're they're certainly checking the boxes, right? Like they're 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 going through the motions. They're offering the sacrifices. They're showing up to gospel community. They're showing up to church on Sunday morning. They're taking the Lord's supper. They're serving. But they're just going through the motions. They're offering food that's polluted. They're sacrificing animals, but they're sick and they're injured. They're not bringing the Lord the best that they have to offer, but instead they're sloppy seconds and they're cast-offs. It's a land of misfit sacrifices. And the Lord says, look, if you brought these things to the governor, not a holy God, but the governor, would he even be honored by these things? And if he wouldn't be honored by these things, how in the world do you think I would be honored by these things. You see, Israel's worship had grown apathetic. Not only that, but in disputation number five, we see that they had grown stingy in their worship as well. Look at chapter three, verses eight through 12. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, Here's their question yet again. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So, that first disputation was not exclusively, but primarily aimed at the priests. Now he's taking aim at the entire nation. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there, be me, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You see, their crops weren't growing. Why? because they were withholding from God they were under the hand of God he was cursing them in their efforts then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the lord of hosts and so we see the lord the, the lord's people they weren't offering their full tithes their full tithes which were required by the law they weren't bringing their voluntary offerings Notice here notice here that the charge is not an absence of or lack of generosity what's the charge it's theft it's it's robbery They they were holding out on the Lord, despising His law, despising the covenant, and keeping for themselves that which belonged to Him. Ultimately, what this amounts to is them making making idols out of riches and things and stuff. They were putting their faith in riches and not in God. And so here, God invites them to repent and to trust in Him and to trust in his blessing and his provision to meet their needs. And so then we're left with two questions with respect to the vertical implications of our worship. Think in terms of the manner in which cynicism and, and, and complacency may kind of worked its way into your life. Question number one, in what ways are you holding out on the Lord? In what ways have you become stingy with Him? He wants all of you. In what ways are you just offering some of you? And, and yeah, uh, tithes and offerings, the building campaign, again, Convenient application, but I will encourage you to consider finances. Yes, consider tithing. Yes, but don't stop there. In what ways are you holding out on the Lord? Secondly, in what ways has your worship grown apathetic? In what ways have you begun to just go through the motions, check the boxes? Paul writes in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices as our spiritual act of worship. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're supposed to do it all to the glory of God. And so, where have you begun to just check boxes? Where do you find yourself looking for loopholes? In what ways are you just going through the motions? Maybe you're still getting up to read your Bible but you're just doing it without giving it much prayerful thought. You find yourself opening up your Bible mindlessly to read it so that you can merely check off a box and say that you did it. Maybe you're sitting at home right now, not gathering with the people of God like you did last week because you didn't want to put a mask on. I mean, you technically attended, right? You technically heard the sermon. You got to leave the mask Or maybe you're here this morning in the flesh, and you're just checking the box. No one can tell. It's not something that we can see, but you're checking the box. You're offering the Lord your blind, three-legged sheep. You're not dialed in. You're not really listening to the sermon. You're certainly not singing that song. You don't even like that song anyway. Doing your best to avoid conversations with people around you who might kind of dump their burdens on you. If they do that, instead of praying for them right now, let's just say, I'll I'll keep that in prayer so that you can forget about it. In what ways have you been stingy? With God? In what ways are you holding out on God? In what ways has your worship grown apathetic? Look, The Lord through Malachi is calling me to repentance this morning, because I'm here to tell you that this has begun to happen. This has begun to take root in my own heart, and I suspect that this is true of some of you as well. He's here to call us today to renewed worship, to revitalize worship. He's calling you and me to worship Him with your best, with your whole being, with everything that you have. Why? Because worship matters. Your worship matters. Because our worship matters. The question then that we're left with is why? Why does our worship matter? Why is this such a big deal? Well, that brings us to our third and final point. The object of our worship. This takes us to the first and the sixth disputations, which bracket pretty much the entire book. Disputation 1 begins in chapter 1, right away, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? There's a question again. Prove it. We disagree. Throw in the flag. This is the thing about cynicism and complacency. They're always looking for someone to blame. They're always looking for someone to blame. So, like Adam in the garden, they often point their finger at God. This is what God's people do here, doubting his love for them. And how does the Lord respond to this doubt? Continuing on, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom, referring to the the people that descended from Esau, if Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will tear down. They will be called a wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. They have no future. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So what does the Lord do? He points all the way back to Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapters 25 through 27 or so. And he reminds us that Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. Now, now don't think of these purely in terms of affection. He's not talking about affection here so much as... Uh, choice. He reminds his people that they chose, he chose their ancestor, Jacob, and he didn't choose. In fact, he rejected Esau. He reminds his people that he has chosen them. He reminds his people that his choosing them was an act of love for them. He chose to bless them. He chose to make them his people, just like he chose their ancestor, the younger brother Jacob. And and look, it wasn't because they deserved it, and it certainly wasn't because Jacob deserved it. He was a liar and a cheat. He deserved to be rejected like Esau was. The Lord had chosen Israel to be his people just as he chose Jacob as an act of unmerited grace. And so look, if if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, know that you've been chosen too. And if you find yourself cynically doubting God's love for you, be reminded of the fact that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And this God having chosen you is evidence of his love for you. Your circumstances aren't evidence of his love for you, his choosing you is. Not your bank account, not the level of comfort you are or aren't enjoying in life right now, not your health, not your family, not your job, not your mask. None of these things are indicators of God's love for you. His having chosen you in Christ, this is evidence of how much he loves you. And again, Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because we deserved it, but but as an act of grace. This brings us finally to disputation number six, where I think we see the cynicism and the complacency climax. The Lord says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is a profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Keep in mind, this is just after, this is, this is just after the Lord charged them with withholding their tithes, right? And after withholding their tithes, the, the question that they pose to God is, like, what's in it for us? What's the profit that we get from this whole thing? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. In the first disputation, the Lord reminds his people that he made a distinction. He reminds his people that in love, he set them apart. And here, their complaint against the Lord, it's a harsh one. And the complaint is this, you may have made a distinction. The problem is, Lord, we can't see it. And if we can't see it, it must not exist. You see, it seems like enemies and evildoers are prospering. They don't worship you, they mock you, they put you to the test, and you do nothing What's the point of worshiping you? What's the point of serving you? What does it profit us? Do you really distinguish between the righteous and the wicked? Your people and not your people. And so here you can see again how Israel had rationalized and justified their apathetic and stingy worship. They had rationalized and justified their complacency and their cynicism. They're marrying of the daughters of foreign gods. They're divorcing of their wives so that they could do so. And in the midst of their difficult circumstances, in the midst of their waiting for the blessing, the promised blessings of God to rain down, they had begun to believe lies about God and to doubt his character. And look, I, I wonder if this is where you are today. It's not a good place to be. And Malachi, the messenger of the Lord, is here today to warn us. Have you, in the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your suffering, your difficult and frustrating circumstances, in the midst of the past 18 months, in the midst of whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, have you begun to grow cynical? And doubt God's character, His goodness, His love for you, His faithfulness, His justice. Continues on in chapter 3, verse 16. It said then, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And read this, Listen. look at this, look at this. The Lord paid attention and heard them. If you're the type that writes in your Bible, underline or circle, he paid attention. He heard them. What a statement that is. What, what, what an act of mercy and grace that he would pay attention to his people, his cynical and complacent people, that he would, that he would hear them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's bad news. But for you, but for you who fear my name, look at the difference here. For you who fear my name, the, the sun of righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, a distinction has been made, and one day you and I will see the distinction, and it will be clear as day. Interestingly, the distinction is framed here in terms. Did you see this? The distinction here is framed in terms of worship, in terms of those who fear him and those who don't, in terms of those who serve him and those who don't, in terms of those who worship him and those who who don't. You see, this is what separates us as Christians from the rest of the world, is worship. And this is why our worship growing cold is such a dangerous thing. Our worship, this is what separates us. So it's what separates those who worship the one true God and those who don't. Those who worship and trust Jesus as rescuer and redeemer and those who don't. And Malachi tells us that this is what separates those who go out leaping like calves from the stall and those who will one day be like stubble. And listen, if, if you've been chosen by God, to be a part of the people of God, then you can't be indifferent in your worship of the God who chose you. The book of Malachi is a call to God's people to return to right worship of him. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Here's how Malachi ends. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. There's that trust and obey theme we saw last week in Zechariah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, before any of that above happens. I'll send Elijah the prophet and he will turn the, heart, the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What Malachi is doing here and, and really what the entire Old Testament does, and by the way, in our Christian Bibles, Malachi gets the final word, certainly gets the final word among the prophets, he ends with a reassurance and a reminder that all of this is about Jesus. It's all about him. Malachi anticipates the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. The entire Old Testament, it it anticipates the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who is the one who will usher in this great and awesome day of the Lord. He is the one who will purify and reconcile the people of God. He is the one who will reconcile the people of God to one another. He is the one who will save his people from utter destruction. And ultimately, he is the one who will return to judge and exact, perfect justice. He has come, and brothers and sisters, Two Pillars Church, be assured of this. He is coming again. And if you turn the page to right after the book of Malachi, what you're going to see is a a blank page, a page with nothing on it. And what we see is that the Lord's people actually had to wait about four centuries for these promises to begin to be fulfilled. When this This Elijah figure, that being John the Baptist, would come to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. What is Malachi doing here? He's preparing his people to wait. He's saying, Be alert, make war with your cynicism, make war with your complacency, and give me the worship that, give the Lord the worship that he is due. Give him right worship and true devotion. In Two Pillars Church, this is what he's calling us to today. And look, if if you're not a Christian and you're joining us here, you're joining us online, I want to draw your attention to Malachi 3.7. Your worship matters too. Because you're a part of this distinction. We're praying that one day you would worship Jesus. Malachi 3.7. Here the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is his promise to you you turn from your sin, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you worship Jesus as Lord and God and Savior, when that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, you too might be spared. You too might be welcomed into the fold of his chosen people. So two pillars, it's it's time to pull that block of cheese out from the fridge. And it's time to to inspect it. And Malachi is here to help us in this. Have complacency and cynicism. have Have they begun to grow in your heart, to take root in your heart? Have they started to affect your worship and fellowship with the Lord? Malachi is here today to call me and to call you out of your cynicism and complacency. into right worship of again and true devotion to our God, our worship matters. Your worship matters. And so, would we trust in Jesus as savior and the object of our worship? Would we obey Jesus as the Lord, as Lord and the one who is worthy of our worship? Let me close with the the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Father, I confess to you with my brothers and sisters here before you Well, that I, I suspect that much like your people of Malachi's day, that cynicism and complacency, they've, they've begun to take root in my heart. And I suspect the same is true for some of my brothers and sisters here. And Lord, we confess that it's impacted our worship. It's impacted the way that we treat one another. It's impacted our, our devotion to you. We've withheld from you that which you deserve and of which you are worthy. Lord, we confess this before you. We cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for choosing us in him, for sending him to be a sacrifice in order that our complacency and our cynicism might be dealt with on the cross. And Lord, in order that we might be welcomed into something greater, something better a worship and a devotion that is pure. Lord, would you do that work in us today, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.